Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast or 3CR Breakfast, the last Wednesday Breakfast show um, of 2022. In studio you have myself, Idwin, and our wonderful panellist, Sunera. Hi, uh, good morning everyone. I am very new to the 3CR team, um, but hopefully throughout next year you'll see me, uh, you'll, listen, you'll get to hear from me a bit more. Absolutely. And Sanera's, um this is her first time on mic, not her first time behind panel. She's been paneling for us for the last few weeks, so that's going to be part of our show today. Um, a little bit later, we're going to have a chat, Sanera, about some of the issues you're interested in and why you're here at 3CR. Mm-hmm. Which is like, this is standard hazing for anyone who comes (laughs) through the Wednesday breakfast team. Well, lovely to be here this morning, finally um, on the mic. Mm, Absolutely. And we've got a special show for you guys uh, today. It's going to be sort of a year in review or an alternative look at 2022. So, I mean, what's been big issues this year that you can think of, Sanira? I think there's been like... Cost of living's been massive. Definitely. The election. Um, yes, and also coming up, uh, which we'll be discussing, like, you know, cybersecurity mm. um, with, the, you know, the Optus and Medicare leaks. Yep. Um, There's also yeah. been, well, that's what we're going to kick off with as our third interview. As our first interview, we're going to have uh, Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation. Now, uh, Bob Brown Foundation is a regular on 3CR Airwaves, but he's going to be sort of giving us an alternative look or a wrap-up, a summary of 2022 and a what's on the agenda for 2023. Obviously, this year in the environment has been pretty hectic. Um, I think, you know, every year goes past and we <laughs> have a lot of things we've, we're trying to hit as a country. So, yeah, we'll have a quick summary of what's been going on and then sort of what to look forward to or what to draw our attention to with Scott Jordan at 7.15. And then after him at about 7.30 or so, we have uh, Josh Ruse. Now, Josh Ruse is a political sociologist at Deakin with focuses in political and religious extremism, populism and the intersection between citizenship, economies, masculinities and law. Uh, I spoke to Josh earlier this year uh, discussing the rise of the Freedom Fighter movement, which is the anti-vax, anti-lockdown community who over the last two years we saw really come together as a group and sort of become political in the federal and Victorian election. So that's rather interesting because we've now had two elections this year and we'll be chatting to Josh about this, about sort of where the Freedom Fighter movement is at. Uh, this and a really interesting point um, about it, which is basically that the Freedom Fighter movement haven't had a lot of superficial success in the election of candidates. However, they are having a growing impact in our political space in Australia. So Josh has a really interesting take on that. 
and we'll be chatting to that about 7.30. After that, we have Damien Manuel, who is also from uh, Deakin, and Damien is the chair of the Australian Information and Security Association. So he'll be talking about a topic that I think a lot of us don't know much about, which is data and data literacy. I don't know if I speak for you, Sonera, but I have zero <laughs> data security. Uh, me too. Um, yeah, it's a it's something that not enough people um, are, know about or are informed mm. about. Mm. So this will be very interesting. Yeah, I think I am guilty, like a lot of us, of being very complicit about what, you know, sort of data is out there of mine. So we're going to be trying to refocus and sort of ask this big question of like, is any of our data truly safe? So yeah, that will be at about 8 o'clock to about 8.10. And then we're finishing off with um, a, a, a segment provided to us by Claudia, originally from Doing Time, which is a great 3CR show. And this will be um, Narita White, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, another very familiar guest at 3CR, talking about the urgency for justice reforms in Victoria for First Nations people. So um, that will be quite interesting. Again, this is set to the backdrop of the voice, um, uh, the raising of the, the, the Albanese's pledge to bring the voice to Parliament um, and, and how long overdue that is. And we, we had a bit of an interesting thing trying to come up to the show and finding a First Nations story that we wanted to platform with the fact that, uh, you know, it's the political what, – what's happening in the political world is so out of step with what's happening with the grassroots level. The grassroots level is decades beyond <laughs> this conversation. So we sort of wanted to give voice to, yeah, what's going on in the grassroots rather than trying to suggest that this is a new fedangled idea. Um, mm. despite the fact that that's kind of what's happening in the political sphere. So that's where we're at. <clears throat> we're actually going to have two songs now before we get into our first interview, um, starting off or kicking off with The Tide Is High by Blondie. So we'll be back after a short break. <laughs>
Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter.
And that was Love Like Water by Lee Flanagan. So first up, we've got our first interview for the morning uh, where we're going to be looking at the environment. So to set the scenes, here's some of the things that have happened to the environment uh, this year or have been on the environmental agenda. First off, we've had our second La Nina season and the nation's worst recorded flood disasters. We had a mass bleaching event earlier this year in the Great Barrier Reef, again, despite being in the La Nina season. And uh, that was sort of the environmental crisis that we started off the year with. Now, more recently, we've had a newly elected government that's committed to its promise to protect 30% of Australia's land by 2030. 2030. However, the details remain a little hazy as to what that's going to look like. On a state level, we've had a protester sentenced to 15 months jail for blocking a lane of traffic. I repeat, 15 months jail for blocking a lane of traffic. Uh, to which the New South Wales Premier said, we, don't, we want people to protest, but we don't want people to be inconvenienced. Hmm, I don't know how that quite some adds up. Statewise, we've also seen the rise of climate litigation. So there was success with the bushfire survivors in Victoria, the continued work of King Lake Friends of the Forest, who again are a regular on our show, and in September, quite novel, uh, the success of Daniel Billy and uh, others versus Australia. This was a particularly fascinating case where um, eight Torres Strait Islander peoples uh, basically submitted a petition against the Australian government to the United Nations Human Rights Committee and in September were able one and were able to prove that the Australian government is violating human rights obligations by um, continuing to have climate change in action. So that was an amazing precedent set through this climate litigation. So a real mixed bag, and I think perhaps this is best uh, summarised by the most recent event, which is COP27, and our newly elected Prime Minister not attending but sending a delegate. So there's probably a metaphor in there somewhere about Australia's approach at the moment to the environment. But to summarise it a lot, lot better... We have Scott Jordan from Bob Brown Foundation joining us this morning. Good morning, Scott. Uh, good morning. <laughs> now, Scott, um, I'm going to ask you to do the impossible. But with the change of government and new environmental commitments, I wanted to ask sort of what's on the lookout for 2023 in terms of new government and where the environment is at in the national conversation? Well, look, I, I think the the new government has come in. They've They've made a lot of promises around uh, fixing our environment law, about reserving um, more of our, our terrestrial and, and marine uh, areas. But we're very light on detail. And so um, I think the environment movement has been, um, you know, I guess, appreciative of, of commitments they've made, but, but somewhat sceptical um, given the, the history of, of commitments that have have not matched the detail when they've mm. come out. And um, I guess we, we go into this year with, with a sense of hope, but, but knowing that we're, we're seeing um, new coal mines, new, new gas fields being approved, we're seeing um, projects like we're fighting um, in, in the Tarkine in Tasmania where um, we're seeing um, mines in the you know, these beautiful rainforest areas currently being assessed. We're seeing MMG's proposal to dump 25 million tonnes of, of acid-producing um, toxic tailings waste into into rainforests in southern Takina. Um, we, we're seeing 
a lot of business as usual, and it, um, the government really has to step up and, and match its rhetoric if it's going to be taken seriously. Absolutely. And it almost feels like there's so many environmental issues to focus on. Where do you start? Um, we've, As you've said, we have this sort of step forward and step backwards. I wanted to ask sort of what are your areas of hope. Um, for me, I've always, I always think the, um, this new movement towards climate litigation is really exciting. Um, and I know Bob Brown's had skin in the game there with some of the climate litigation you guys have been putting up. But yeah, well, what's, what do you think is sort of areas or points of leverage that we, could, we can be using? Look, I, I certainly think the litigation, not just on climate, but on, on environment in general, is a, is a really vital part of the mix and we've, we've seen more of it over years and we've seen um, governments at, at federal and state levels be quite disparaging of that but the simple premise is you know, uh, the government doesn't get a, a blank check on the environment, it has to follow the law and and if, if we have to turn to the courts to force them to do that then that's what we should do um, and, and we've seen huge successes um, on, on climate issues but also um, on, in, on environmental issues where, where ministers um, have, have not um, used the, the, the mechanisms within the, the EPBC Act, for example, mm. um, in a way that's consistent with the, the way the Act is written and there's been a, a rush to just go through a process and then wave things, things through. And, and the courts have, have pushed back against that and, and said that no, the ministers are obligated to follow the laws that the parliament put in place. And mm. so um, we, we will continue to use that mechanism where it's available to us. And, and you know, I would encourage groups to, to seriously look at um, using those mechanisms to hold governments to account. Mm. And I know that just on that sort of issue, there's been sort of this awkward situation where you know, a judgment goes through and then government sort of ignores it. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, the uh, 2020... Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. But the win where basically um, a bunch of kids showed that the climate, the, the environmental minister owes them um, consideration when making, when making big development issues or big environmental issues to consider young people's uh, futures as impacted by climate change. And then we've seen sort of... Further approvals for gas and coal projects. I mean, where do we come out with that? How do we push back against that sort of ignoring of a precedent or a judgment that's been set? Well, look, I guess there's there's um, always the opportunity to go back before courts if, if governments are failing to um, to adhere to judgments courts mm. have made. But but the other mechanism, of course, that's always available to us is is at the ballot box, and if, if governments refuse to listen, if they if they um, they seem to think the law is is optional for them, then they don't deserve to be there, and, and people really should um, exercise that ability at the ballot box to to put in the representatives they want. Um, but look, uh, outside of elections, um, the the right to protest is is something that's really sacred in this country and, and sacred around the world. And, and we see a government here that is quite happy to criticise Iran and North Korea and, and Russia and other regimes where protest is being stifled. Yet we're seeing around the country in Australia, um, state by state, protest laws being brought in that are, that are there to um, stifle protest, to, to put protesters in jail, to um, yeah, act in ways that are simply anti-democratic and and 
silencing um, those voices in the community that are standing up for a safe planet and, and for intact environments. And, and we were very pleased yesterday, um, you know, Bob Brown and I and a, and a group of other environmentalists from around Tasmania um, stood with, with Senator David Shoebridge and, and Nick McKim and uh, the, the Greens put forward their plans to put a, a bill before the federal parliament next year to enshrine the right to protest at a federal level and, and using mechanisms within the um, United Nations Convention on Civil and Political Rights to 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 allow the federal parliament to enact those laws. And mm. so we we're quite pleased that, that, you know, a voice in the parliament has stood up and said, we're going to no, do the yeah. <laughs> well, and, that... and, and so we're, um, yeah, we're really hopeful in the new year that we see that mm. um, bill supported by the government and, and that, that bill passes into law and we're able to overturn these, these frankly, draconian laws mm. that states are bringing in. I'm really glad you bring up the protest laws because I was thinking while you were chatting, you know, that is the third mechanism is protest. Um, and it it is shocking the sort of criminalisation of protests that we've seen this year. Now, I know Bob Brown um, himself went through this recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened down the Tarkeen? Well, look, we, we've, we've been running a campaign against um, a plan for... Uh, a Chinese government-owned miner, MMG, to dump 25 million uh, cubic metres of of toxic acid-producing heavy metal sulphide tailing into a beautiful area of rainforest. They've already got their mine. Their mine sits outside the Sarkine. Their plan is actually to pump the thing across the, the Pyman River and into the rainforest there and to destroy this beautiful rainforest valley at McKinney Creek. And and this area's got uh, threatened species like the Tasmanian masked owl, like the wedge-tailed eagle. It's, it's got the Tasmanian devil, spotted-tailed quality. It's, it's a haven for those species. And and we've we've been blockading at that site where the company's now 22 months behind and as a result of the, the federal court win that we had earlier in the year, they've been forced back to the very start of that process to, to go through that assessment from day one. And so... Um, about a thousand people have turned up on that blog aid. It's in fact the biggest um, direct action campaign we've seen in Tasmania, and maybe the biggest in the country, or certainly in the in the, in the top tier of them mm. uh, since the Franklin. And, and we're very proud of what we pulled off there. But 86 people got arrested on yeah. that campaign, wow. um, standing in the way of the bulldozers for for activities that was found by the court to be illegal. Mm. And and that company has never been prosecuted. But all of those individuals are still having to face the court. In fact, I'm in court this morning uh, with support for um, some activists who've been um, arrested on a, on a recent action in some swift parrot habitat outside of the Tarkine in the northeast of Tasmania, um, a site there where Bob Brown himself was, was arrested a few short weeks ago. And, um, you know, that, that activity, again, was found to be unlawful, that the, the swift parrot habitat had not been protected. We were... We had people standing in those coops while trees are, are being dropped and there's swift parrots flying around in clear view and, and these these amazing migratory parrots are critically endangered and, and um, the logging agency, the state government logging agency, Sustainable Timber Tasmania, has an obligation under law to protect them and they just ignore it and until our protesters turn up in those forests, um, there isn't a voice. It just continues, parrots. yeah.
Yeah. Look, it's a, it is the same story in Victoria, I know, from sort of our logging stuff. And I always think it's incredibly unfair that the burden, whether it's climate litigation or um, having to defend yourself in court, always falls on the protesters who don't necessarily have the time or resources where a lot of these logging companies um, do. Uh, apart from sort of this, this new bill, which sounds really interesting, um, sort of trying to bolster the right to protest, what's, what is on the agenda for Bob Brown in 2023 or what should we be looking out for? Well, look, we've, we've moved back into um, the, the rainforest in the southern park on at Mimi Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know that um, sometime early this in the new year we will see um, Minister Blibersack have to make a decision on whether she will allow the preliminary roading and, and drilling works to, to occur on that site. And um, we've pushed back very strongly to suggest that, that she should just reject this project outright. Um, but I guess uh, her form hasn't been great so far in, in terms of projects she's approved that she really should have rejected. And so uh, we're moving into those forests. We've got people up in, in sits as we speak and we're, we're going to use the opportunity over the summer to, to get as many people into those forests and show them what's at stake and um, and, and really encourage them to, to join our campaign. Um, and then in the new year, if, if that decision does come down the wrong way, then, then that uh, occupation um, will change from a, a, a come and see the forest to a come and defend the forest. And gotcha. we'll have people back on the blockades and we will, we will stop those machines if we need to. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we're, we're also running actions um, where we're about to identify swift parrot habitat at risk. Um, we'll continue to defend those parrots and... Um, you know, we, we're also continuing with our campaigns around our marine environment with the, the threats from um, fish farming and but also from um, krill fishing in Antarctica and we've, we've been um, working with other organisations around how we we bring that issue to the forefront in terms of... Um, we, we've had a lot of focus over many years from a lot of organisations on on the impact on whales or whaling, but but the impact of krill fishing is starving our whales and they're, mm. they're very much at risk from that krill fishing industry. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us and yeah, giving us sort of the, the rundown on this year, next year, things to be hopeful for, um, and best of luck with the court proceedings this morning. <laughs> All right, thank you. And that was Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation. Uh, Yeah, you can find out more information at the Bob Brown website, which is a simple Google. Um, But for now, we're going to play a couple of 3CR community announcements and we'll be back with our next uh, interview. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, 
please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. I want to drive When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, last live show of 2022, which is very exciting. We're doing a sort of wrap-up on big issues in 2022. So, of course, of course, with two um, elections, especially a state election here, I thought democracy was on the cards for talking about today. And to do so, we have Josh Ruse, who's a political sociologist at Deakin. Now, I said at the top of the show, but his research looks at political and religious extremism, populism, and the intersection between citizenship, economies, masculinities, and law. I caught up with him earlier this year to talk about the rise of the freedom fighter movement uh, as sort of um, this new political foil to the established Canberra bubble, if you like, um, and sort of the motivations, the reasons for this group coming together, the violence and threat uh, to democracy that they bring and everything above. So I thought it'd be worth re-catching up with him and talking about it in the wake of uh, second election and, yeah, discussing sort of this role of misinformation uh, and uh, the motivations sustaining this movement because a lot of this movement is held together by people who are grifting or looking to sell something. Uh, a lot of the, It's a very fringe, mixed group of people. Uh, and, yeah, it's just a very interesting continuing phenomenon. So uh, we'll jump into this. I caught up with him on Monday. So, yeah, let's listen now. Hi, Josh. Uh, last time we chatted, we were discussing freedom fighters and their impact on the federal election. And a, a central point you brought up was that they may not have had success superficially with the uh, election of candidates, but they had taken out a chunk of the primary vote and that their influence, their political influence, was increasing. And also that their presence would continue to increase without systemic change and address to big issues like the cost of living. So we've had the federal election and recently the Victorian election. Where do you see the freedom fighter movement at the moment in terms of democracy in Australia? Yeah, that's a great question um, because they, they did initially focus on electoral success uh, as, as a key sort of way of building their movement. And we know in both the federal election, uh, but definitely more recently the state election here in Victoria where you would expect there was going to be a bounce in their favour it would occur. Uh, it was a pretty abject failure on their part. Mm. So we know that um, in, in many respects their electoral strategies uh, were unsuccessful, but also potentially there wasn't that basic support that they, they thought that they could mobilise. Uh, 
So what we have seen, though, is this committed core of protesters, um, many of whom hold quite fringe at best, often extreme beliefs, continue to protest, um, but also continue to mobilise, uh, continue to organise online, and if anything, in some cases, that group has become even more hard-edged. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask, um, obviously there's not a lot of details about two significant attacks that have happened this year. The two I'm referring to is an attack on journalist Friendly Geordies and also more recently the Queensland shooting. Now, not necessarily suggesting that these are freedom fighters involved or whatever, but we have sort of seen this uptick of violence and sort of activist violence, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yes, so, I mean, I'm not qualified to talk on the Friendly Geordies case because I just don't have the amount of information necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, although we do know that um, he is effectively a, um, I suppose, the left-wing version of independent media, someone who's out there raising issues about um, what's happening on the right of politics um, and obviously um, would certainly be in the metaphoric sides mm-hmm. of, uh, of many on, um, who have come under scrutiny from him. But when it comes to the more hard edge and the potential for violence that we've seen across the, the other groups, um, I mean, it was always there. You know, mm. you had protest rallies in Canberra and in Victoria where gallows were being um, hauled around, where you had certain actors up in front of big groups of people calling for executions of journalists and the media. Uh, we know that journalists were giving a, given a really hard time at some of these rallies. Um, and, and quite frankly, if a politicians such as Dan Andrews had walked into the middle of these groups when they were really at at their peak, you don't know what would have happened. Mm. So we're at a point now where many people, journalists, Mm -hmm. academics, certain figures uh, in in government and politicians, but also in authority, uh, law authorities and so on, have been talking about the violent potential of these groups for quite some time. So to talk about Queensland, well, this is a case in point of... um, obviously yet to come out in a full uh, inquiry. But at the very early stages, it appears quite clear that this is a case of people caught up in conspiracy movements, fringe uh, extremist uh, political ideals and ideologies, um, enacting violence. Uh, And so we we need to take these groups seriously and do a hell of a lot more, quite frankly, uh, to track track them and and to understand their, their motivations and likely actions. I remember earlier this year you made a, a great point that a lot of freedom fighters or, or people in these fringe groups find themselves on social media, find themselves on platforms like Telegram. Uh, and they're stressed. They're stressed often because of very systemic issues that we're all facing, such as cost of living. Uh, I wanted to get sort of the thoughts on the, the big area issues we should be looking at reforming or, or looking at in 2023 to sort of uh, reconnect with these individuals and really address the stresses that are pushing them further and further out. Yes, yeah, so certainly inequality, there's been rising, rapidly rising inequality for, you know, for some time now. And we know that, uh, for example, in, in rural areas, there's, there's a confluence of issues. Uh, poverty in certain areas, uh, particularly at the fringes of towns, right? We're talking about increased ice use, double the amount that we're seeing in um, the cities and, and so on. Mm. Uh, so we know that there's this sort of, um, uh, sort of right conditions. And we know that the far right have mobilised and, and been somewhat successful in mobilising some country and rural areas as opposed to what they might be getting in the towns. 
it's something that's got to be taken seriously, and it's, it requires a whole of government approach. We can't mm-hmm. just talk about violent extremism and radicalisation without talking about education, without talking about welfare, without talking about other factors that really prevent this from uh, for getting you know, to a certain point. My next question was switching over to the misinformation, disinformation side of things, because we know this feeds a lot of fringe beliefs. Uh, But this year, there's been a real fact-checking effort by both Victoria and Federal Electoral Commission in doing a lot of online work to uh, counter claims when they come up. And I wanted to know what you thought about what part this plays in addressing democracy or building democracy and trust for these fringe groups? You know, are we preaching to the choir? Are we potentially alienating them? What's the role? No, I think it's critical, to be honest. I Mm. think that the Electoral Commissions have been on the ball. They've been very proactive. And I think here we've got to understand that we're talking not only about fringe activists attempting to, you know, upset people at local polls or, you know, potential misinformation online about conspiracy theories, about the vote, Trump style, but we're also potentially seeing uh, international or... Um, you know, attempts to influence um, our elections from foreign actors. We've seen it overseas. It's got to be taken very seriously by our electoral commissions. And I think they've been very proactive. I, I think irrespective of the risk of alienating a very small minority here, mm-hmm. you've got to take that attempt to counter disinformation and misinformation very seriously. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, then we risk running, um, you know, allowing that to gain traction amongst at least a small segment of the population, and, that, and that's dangerous. And my final question is, um, <laughs> this is, I suppose, a, a more of an opinion question, but coming up to the Christmas season, a lot of us are going to be having uh, family get-togethers with people that we have deep, <laughs> <laughs> deep political disagreements and divides with, and they say no politics at the table, but obviously it comes up. I was just wondering, how should you go about talking to... Uh, your conspiracy aunt or uncle or, or someone that you disagree with and sort of finding that reconnection? Look, I think people who believe in conspiracy theories, generally speaking, from experience, thrive on, on that polarisation and, and people who, who attack them because that's just, uh, in, in many ways, um, established to, establishing to them mm-hmm. uh, that there's a set of... Uh, maybe what they're saying is correct and that's upsetting. So in their worldview, an attack is actually considered, you know, uh, evidence that someone doesn't doesn't see the truth, or um, you know, for want of a better term, um, doesn't get it. So attacking them um, at the Christmas table or even outside isn't necessarily going to help. It'd be a tough pill to swallow sitting at a table with someone spewing a lot of garbage. You don't have to tacitly accept it, but very politely, very respectfully, challenging it with evidence. Um, I find uh, from what I've seen and from what studies are showing and and anecdotal evidence is demonstrating. Um, if not if not changing their view, at least reins them in and, and gives a sense um, that everyone else who's listening, anyone else who might be potentially caught up in this, mm-hmm. it gives a, an important alternative um, narrative and an important alternative viewpoint. And if you do it respectfully, then you're not you're not getting caught in a shouting match. You look you look better <laughs> and you look more more respectful. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for uh, joining us today and having a bit of a chat about freedom fighters and sort of state of democracy in Australia, I suppose. Yeah, thanks very much. Have a great summer.
And that was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. Yes, I have been theming the songs <laughs> throughout today's um, broadcast. Now, up next, we've actually got a pretty fun interview. We're interviewing our paneler, Sonera, um, as this is sort of her first time on mic, um, but she's been paneling for us for a few weeks. So, Sonera, I wanted to kick off with asking, yeah, how you got involved with the 3CR family and where you're at? Um, well, it was a bit of like a... Uh, a chain of events so uh, this year in June I went to Youth Parliament uh, I, uh, so I, I was in the press gallery for the Youth Parliament program and there were like a few um, jo- uh, student journalists mm. um, including uh, a previous Wednesday breakfast show host um, Jacob Gamble Oh, cool! and they were the one who told me about um, 3CR Community Radio and I you know, I was, I was like kind of nervous about um, going on radio, but um, in the end, I was like, 
you know what, I'll do it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I volunteered and here I am. I actually remember doing Youth Parliament 2017. So that's quite an experience where you kind of um, get to put up a whole bunch of bills and I'm sure you, as a press gallery, got to report on it and yeah. update a live blog, right? Yeah, uh, yeah basically live tweeting, photography, mm. like writing articles, interviewing, um, yeah, whatever you can name like you can name it we did it all <laughs> and it was a pretty small group we had like um six people six uh six press uh six people in the press gallery so mm. yeah a lot of, we did a lot of work yeah. yeah yeah and it's all youth run pretty cool mm -hmm. um from memory all the coordinators have to be under 25 as well so yeah, yeah. I, I was like <laughs> i was really surprised that everyone even the people that were running everything they were all uh we were all in our 20s or even younger mm. um some mm -hmm. teenagers as well um really um like really like surprised but like happily surprised at what um how much young people are capable of yeah absolutely and um in terms of 3cr and what you've been listening to like what's been your sort of favorite shows or standouts or yeah what's going on there um so when i found out about 3cr i decided to check out some programs and um, one of the programs that I'm the most fond of, um, like, or listen to the most is, um, Diaspora Blues. Oh, um, yeah, yeah love mm -hmm. that show. And obviously, like, I feel like I can connect to a lot of the, um, experiences there. And also, like, um, I love hearing from, you know, different, like, people from different communities because, you know, migrants, um, you know, they're not, like, the people like all migrants are not the same so i love um like finding out you know what other people from other communities are like as well as trying to find um as as well as connecting to things we have um in similar mm. so yeah that's always a good show diaspora blues yeah yeah absolutely and we'll have that when we do our conclusion we'll have the runtime for that so we can definitely refer it on mm -hmm. um I wanted to also ask, you know, you're doing, obviously you're doing some burgeoning journalism, it sounds like, from doing the press gallery. Mm -hmm. Is that an interest? And if so, what sort of other big key issues that you want to talk about, bring to radio, bring to Wednesday breakfast? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm studying journalism, going on in my final year next year. Oh, congrats. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely an interest and... Um, I feel like I'm kind of a curious person. So once I'm like, you know, interested in something, I can't stop um, <laughs> looking into it. But um, I definitely want to bring like, um, like migrant um, issues um, and um, mental health issues to the forefront mm. as well. Um, and I'm also um, wanting to explore um, deep, like wanting to research more into environmental um, issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. On the on the mental health front, like, what's what's an angle or an interest in there? Because I know mental health, mm. you know, you and I have both been raised with, like, a huge mental health curriculum. You know, schools are pushing a lot of mental health awareness these days. Mm -hmm. But it can often feel like the nuance of mental health gets lost in everything you're learning. So what's what's your sort of angle or interest in the mental health area? Um, Kind of how, like, it's you know it's very uh like how everything is underfunded in the mental health sector there's not enough um mm. 
practitioners and like just not enough people to help this mental health crisis that we're having mm. at the moment um so yeah and yeah. how like you know recently the go- government also announced that they'll be scaling back um to 10 free sessions instead of 20 mm. and just kind of like i want to f- like i wish i could focus on kind of the people that would be left behind um in terms of getting mental health care whether that be like you know people of color migrants and um a lot of people from like lower socioeconomic areas yeah. that might be left behind because of this and even before this yeah yeah so doing a series on sort of that um what 10 sessions slash 20 sessions looks like for an individual and the difference that that makes or the gap that that creates yeah definitely yeah interesting and uh what was the other two you said migrants and um environmental and environment now environment that was the one uh, i i've been broadcasting a little bit for earth matters mm-hmm. so we've been doing everything environment right um what's yeah what what interests do you have in sort of aussie environment and yeah areas there to be honest, I haven't really done much. Um, I haven't really written like stories or reported much on environmental issues. So that's something um, that I would like to get into next year. Ah, okay, cool. and like kind of involve myself um, in that space because you know Australia has a lot of opportunity to make real change, like for our climate. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's not. I don't think it's being done. Cool. And like politicians are just like, you know, yeah. a lot of them are going to die sooner than <laughs> us. But like, you know, we'll have to live in, um, and our future generations mm. will have to live in what they've um, done or not done. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of environment, migrant, and mental health stuff brought to Wednesday next year, which is awesome. I hope um, so. Yeah. There'll be some great stories. And how are you finding radio? Uh, obviously, is is it your comfort area of journalism, or are you more a no. press journalist, or what? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so far, all I've been doing, I'm very used to writing for print. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm here, and like. I feel like radio, I really want to be more comfortable going um, on radio and doing more audio journalism. Um, I think it's really interesting, but it's just um, another skill that I really want to develop well. Um, and I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet, but um, with 3CR, hopefully, yeah. it'll all come along. Yeah. Well, the Wednesday breakfast team, uh, I just ecstatic to have you so thank thank you you for panelling our last couple of shows and for joining us on mic today and giving us a bit of insight Um, I think it's always useful to know what different broadcasters interest points are and yeah what we're going to I guess have brought to the team next year yeah yeah um, hopefully we'll see you and like you know I'm happy to work with um, everyone else on Wednesday breakfast (laughs) in the the 3CR family Uh, all right well we're going to jump to with that we're going to jump to a couple of community service announcements and then be back in for our next interview with Damien Manuel Luciano and Georgia Keats supported by the Australian Queer Archive present Queer Ways retracing Melbourne's queer footprint Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. 
visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is 7.56 and we're jumping in to our next interview with Damien Manuel. Damien is the chair of the Australian Information Security Association and an adjunct professor with Deakin University. And we're going to be chatting today about data security in Australia and what we should all be doing with our data, I suppose. Uh, good morning, Damien. Morning. Morning. Uh, Damien, we've had a couple of massive data scandals this year um, with Optus and Medicare. What's going wrong with Australia's approach to data security? Well, we've always had data breaches of varying sizes and to varying degrees. And I think what's really sort of happened as a result of the Optus and Medibank is organisations have kind of realised that you know, data that they used to hoard and keep before because, you know, data had a value that could be mined and, and used for commercial purposes later, they've suddenly realised that actually having all this data around that may not be necessary for them to use anymore is actually a liability to their business. So we're going to start to see a bit of a trend where companies will start to keep less data than more data. Mm. And uh, a big issue that has come up is encryption, which was brought in under the uh, 2018 Assistance and Access Bill. Yeah. Now, I reference this because um, this act required providers to do things to, to assist government agencies, uh, which included removing electronic protection and then concealing the fact that anything had been done from clients. So this had fundamentally ident- uh, undermined the system, where the security of these companies, uh, by putting a loophole or backdoor access for government in the software and has sort of been um, one of those bills which has a lasting legacy in how we approach data. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the consequences of this bill and 
how it shows um, government attitudes towards data security currently. Definitely. The bill was introduced in 2018 and it caused a real storm internationally. So in 2019 at the RSA conference in San Francisco, you know, it was the number one talked about item in terms of what Australia has done because we were the first country to effectively sort of put this encryption busting sort of backdoor sort of capability in there for our security agencies. Mm. Uh, and so it, it really created a lot of uncertainty in the market. Uh, it created a lot of problems for new startup companies because there was this sudden hesitation of, uh, should I be using services or technology developed from Australia when the government would basically get an organisation or compel an organisation to mm. remove encryption or decode information? Um, it fundamentally undermines the whole reason that we have encryption and privacy. And one of the things that I think a lot of people were really concerned about was the level of oversight, the transparency, and how often uh, that sort of notice to remove encryption to get access to information uh, would be used. And the disappointing thing is that we're not really seeing sort of really open transparency. The Labor government, before they got into power, wanted to make amendments mm. uh, to that legislation to improve uh, transparency and to improve governance and oversight, uh, and that was rejected by the, the government at the time, which was the Morrison government. Um, so we'll wait and see if there'll be any sort of further changes with that legislation through you know, the Labor government currently at the moment. But it was very disappointing to have that legislation put in place because fundamentally... You know, encryption is there to protect data. It can be exploited by other people um, if you're putting in systems or purposes to undermine sort of that encryption. And it also removes trust in the whole system as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, as we said, like this year has been quite a shock, I think, for a lot of people who aren't data literate or didn't really know what's what was going on. Um, I definitely was in that basket. Um, but then moving towards solutions, it's this is huge, immovable problem. So I was wondering, you know, there, there's so many different ways we could tackle this problem or approach this problem. Uh, what should we be a, doing? Yeah. Yep. And, and, the, and the other shock I think that happened this mm. year was, you know, in June it came to light that Bunnings came out and the good guys had been using facial recognition yeah, technology absolutely. to track customers. Uh, and when you think about that technology, it is so pervasive that, you know, we could be in a future where, you know, leaving your home and going to the supermarket, you're tracked and monitored by electronic systems that are then recording your movements and, you know, uh, highlighting whether you're a good citizen or not sort of mm. in the future. So we have to really be careful and think about, you know, where limit will lie in terms of uh, privacy and sort of access to our data. Because we we don't want to end up in a situation where, for example, China has a system which is a social credit score. Uh, And so depending on what you say online, who you talk to, what school you went to, what circles of friends you sort of interact with and what you say publicly, you'll get a social credit rating score which Mm -hmm. then determines whether you're freely allowed to move between different cities, whether you're allowed to use certain government services... And if you say things that maybe the government doesn't like, your credit score drops. Or if you do things or associate with people who uh, the government views as being hostile, your credit score drops again. So it's you know unfortunately a great way to control a whole population. Mm. And this is kind of the system that we're slowly edging towards in sort of Western democracies. Um, you know, Stan Grant kind of likens it 
very similar to the stolen generation where Indigenous Australians were you know, highly monitored and controlled. And we're starting to see that happen, not just for Indigenous Australians, but for the wider population as well. Well, uh, yeah, so this is where I wanted to sort of quickly touch on solutions because I know, you know, it's it's a big question of is it a public or a private sector? Uh, Should we be looking at the classification of data or should we be bringing in, um, as Labor was perhaps suggesting with these amendments, more transparent process and this idea of provable security, the proof that, you know, things are secure or that your data is being handled in a secure way throughout all the stages yeah. of life cycle. So, yeah, where do you think that that ought to start? So I think there's, there's a number of elements. One is we do need a big social sort of campaign with the community to increase awareness around how data is used, uh, you know, what kind of challenges could occur when people steal your, you know, personal information and, you know, identity theft and things like that. And I think there needs to be an uplift in privacy protection for consumers, um, you know, particularly when you're thinking about things like facial recognition tracking, um, you know, organisations keeping a lot of personal information on individuals that could potentially be monetised in the future, but, mm. you know, they, they're still keeping it in their systems. Uh, and then we need to think about better ways to authenticate because, um, you know, if a service provider calls you at home, how do you really know it's, you know, Telstra or your energy provider calling you and not a scammer? So we need some sort of better mechanism where there, you know, it, it's an ability for consumers but also providers of service to be able to authenticate each other and make sure that, you know, people are not being duped by scammers pretending to be you know, FedEx or Australia Post or Telstra calling as an example. Mm. I think we need to see some improvements in those systems. Uh, we also need to make a really big push for small to medium businesses and they need a lot of help with cybersecurity. And the reason why they're critical is a lot of these small to medium businesses form part of the larger supply chain. So the easiest way to attack an organisation and steal its data is to go for the weakest point and mm. that's often to attack a small to medium business as well. Gotcha. And the final thing I wanted to ask on this education point is, you know, can we really trust our companies with our data? And if, if at the very, at the very least, what can we do to sort of safeguard our data as sort of in the day to day? Yep. So I think a lot of organisations need to start thinking about developing ethical advisory councils mm-hmm. and using, you know, independent external uh, individuals that understand ethics to really answer the questions of. Just because you can do something with somebody's data, should you really be doing that from a social responsibility perspective? You know, are other things you're doing going to erode the trust with consumers or help to build trust? And so I think really we need to see a trend of organisations, particularly large corporates, starting to form ethical advisory councils that can help guide them from that perspective. And I think as a consumer, we also need to be aware that you know, a lot of the times we just scroll past the whole terms and conditions and click accept to use the service without really considering the unintended consequences of what we've just done. Mm-hmm. Because we've probably just given our information away freely to be used and sold to third parties who then may try to sell services back to us and exploit us in some other sort of way. Um, you know, or it could be that, you know, if, even if you look at a rewards program, so... Uh, you know, you're signing up for various rewards programs through various companies. Where is that data going? Who has access to that data? What happens if that data is stolen and released publicly? 
Will it cause a problem for you? Will it lead to your identity theft? Uh, and identity theft is you know, nothing to really joke about because if you're the subject of identity theft, it could be years and years of hard work to try and get your identity sort of uh, back in the sense that your credit score, uh, which impacts the loans that you can get or services that you can use improved because a lot of criminals, what they'll do is steal your details, go and open up a loan in your name, incur a lot of debt, and then you're basically left uh, sort of with a, a bad credit rating, making it difficult for you to you know, get a, a credit Maneuver. card in the future or a mortgage. Mm. Well, definitely um, quite a few things to think about. And I really appreciate, uh, Damien, you taking some time this morning because uh, Sonera and I were chatting about it prior to the show and just saying that there's just so little data literacy um, and that we're sort of very complacent about it. So yeah, everything yeah. – oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was – it's me, Sonera, and I was just chiming in. I was just saying, yeah, we were – me and Idwin were talking about this before the show and, you know, I was thinking about how – uh, everything's very convenient now and you know you can share your location and um, what you're doing on social media all the time and you know people just don't think about it just because it's convenience right yeah, yeah it's, it's really important to think of the unintended consequences you know if you share you know i'm traveling overseas i'm going on a great holiday really excited you're now advertising to, you know, a world of criminals that you're not going to be home and your house is available for, you know, somebody to break in and steal your things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we're sharing our locations, you know, relationships break up sometimes. You know, is the person that you broke up with now going to start stalking you because they can track your location? Um, you know, there's commercial spyware that parents can buy to put on their kids' phones to spy on their kids and track where they're going. Um, you know, other than eroding trust, it also creates an avenue where that spyware could be exploited by somebody else. You know, the company mm-hmm. that you bought that from, what are they doing with that information? Because their own staff might be then spying on your kids as well. I guess the devil is in the detail. But thank you so much, Damien, for yeah coming on and chatting to us this morning. Thank you very much. Dirty computer walking by If you look closer, you'll recognize I'm not that special, I'm broken time Crashing slowly, the bugs are in
And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is just on 8.11. And we have our next segment. Now, before we jump in, uh, I wanted to follow up with Damien Manuels. His, uh, he mentioned the user agreement online, you know, the sort of terms and conditions. And I have a plugin to recommend for people who have problems with just sort of blindly clicking agree. It's called Terms of Service Didn't Read. And it's a plugin that you can chuck on your thing and it will basically go through the terms and conditions and find any dodgy clauses. So if you're interested in having a look at that, it's tosdr.org. And it is security approved. So, yeah, definitely have a look at that because that's uh, blindly ticking user agreements is definitely something I'm guilty of. I don't know about you. Anyway, next up, we're going to head into another area of policy that's been very much in the news this year. The Albanese government has put a referendum on a voice to parliament for First Nations people. And it sparked passionate debate from all sides of politics. In Victoria, the Uruk Justice Commission officially began its work hearings, uh, this work hearing the stories and experiences of First Nations people as and the impacts of colonization. In the first three months, the commission has held 29 yarning circles, uh, hearing from 200 elders across the state, and has recently delivered its interim report in June. The commission is now in the midst of its hearings on criminal justice and child removal. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS, uh, made submissions for justice reform in both of these areas and last week uh, appeared in person before the commission. So Marissa from 3CR's Doing Time program spoke to the CEO of VALS, uh, Narita White, to find out more. We're going to take a listen to this conversation now. Hello, Narita. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Marissa. It's so lovely to have you. Narita, yeah. I'm just wondering if you could just, um, I, I know I always ask you this question, but it's so important for listeners to be clued in. Can you just tell us about what land you're from? Yes. Um, so um, through my maternal grandmother, um, I'm Yorta Yorta, and through my, my maternal grandfather, Pop, who's still alive, I'm not in Jerry, but I've um, grown up on Wurundjeri land here in Melbourne. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Narita. Now, could you talk about what's going on with the plan for Aboriginal justice in Victoria and some of the things that the legal service would really like to, to do or implement? Yeah, so, um, of course. So, as um, Marissa, we've had many conversations, I think. Um, so, it feels like a number of years, but I might be yeah. wrong about the fact that just too many of our people are dying in custody and each of those deaths has a ripple effect throughout our communities, which creates a wave of grief and trauma that passes on through generations. And our plan for Aboriginal justice in Victoria is about combating um, that stem of trauma and grief to create better outcomes for all Victorians uh, because tough on crime politics has not made our community safer. Um, it's caused a lot of harm and it destroys lives, families and communities. Victoria spending on prisons and police is absolutely ridiculous and unsustainable and doesn't deliver on public safety or outcomes for communities. And those billions of dollars wasted on prisons and police could be so much better spent on secure housing, excellent healthcare, education and work that actually pays the bills. Um, and Zales' plan really comes from almost 50 years of experience. Um, we've always had a strong connection to our communities and we know Victoria's legal system. So our plan is really based on 
our clients' stories, their experiences, their voices. Um, and we hope the politicians will listen to us and commit to putting our plan into action because, frankly, we're the only people who have a plan for Aboriginal Victorians in terms of justice. And in that plan, what we're asking them to do is some really simple things. Building Aboriginal legal services our people deserve, bail reform, raising age of criminal responsibility, police oversight and accountability, independent detention oversight, no more prisons, and a public health response to public intoxication, and a future for our kids, um, because enough's enough. And if people want more detail on the plan, please go to our website at bails.org.au to read the plan. Um, it's really simple, um, really easy to read, and I think really tells the story of what we need as a community. Absolutely, Narisha. And, and I, I really hope that you're also looking after yourself, because you, you do a lot of really wonderful work there. You know, it's, it's not easy. Um, Self-care is really important. Yeah, look, we try, um, but at peak times like this, or we've got an election and you rock, um, it's all about getting through. And we get through because we want to make the best outcomes we can for community. That means just pushing a little bit harder during those tough times and then easing off the pedal when you've got those lighter times ahead. Narita, can I just ask you one last question? Can we talk about corruption and abuse in prisons? Because I think that's... Not a problem. There have been so many reports about corruption and abuse in prison. And, you know, even in regards to what happened with Veronica Nelson. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been no secret, Marissa, that for quite some time we've been pushing for independent detention oversight system in Victoria that's culturally appropriate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, because as you've seen in that report, and you've also cited Veronica Nelson, and there's many more, um, when a person is deprived of their liberty, they still have a right to be treated safely and humanely. There was no humane treatment in the way those little boys were treated. There was no humane treatment for Veronica Nelson. And there's just too many examples of torture and abuse when people are deprived of liberty in Victoria. And we need to shine a light on these places. You know, three Aboriginal people have died in Victoria prison in the last 12 months, which adds to 520 Aboriginal Australian Islander people who have died in custody since the Royal Commission of Death in Custody, which was, what, 91, 90? Um, and until we put in those oversight mechanisms, that accountability and that and really ensuring independence and transparency, you will not see meaningful action in this space. Um, And we've really dragged our feet because we signed up to OPCAT in 2017. Um, We didn't meet our deadline in order to implement the independent oversight mechanism. We asked for an extension. We're about to pass that extension because our systems and our governments just really don't want to do the work. Because really, if they do the work, they have to address the systemic problems that prisons create day in, day out. Absolutely. And, and, and in fact, what, what's actually quite appalling as well, Narita, is that IBAC found that corrections officers had used excessive force and conducted strip searches that breached official policy um, in regards to one incarcerated person with an intellectual disability. I mean, what's with that? Yeah, well, that's not uncommon. Um, that's, that's incredibly typical. In fact, there's a matter going before the High Court at the moment um, in relation to um, strip searching. The Court of Appeal decision wasn't that great um, or favourable. We're hoping for a better outcome in the High Court. And um, particularly women um, suffer, suffer horrendous 
trauma um, when going through strip searching because, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, many of them have uh, histories of abuse um, and events such like that are very triggering. Um, and for me, uh, you know, day in, day out, all we hear through our specialist practice um, in Wirraway are stories of abuse from corrections officers, from police officers. Um, there's people who have coercive power um, over vulnerable people and... You know, for me, it's not really, Marissa, just about independent oversight. It's also about saying no more prisons. You know, they just don't work. They don't rehabilitate people. Um, they're inherently violent and corrupt places. They're unaffordable and irresponsible and from an economic point of view. And um, we just, we're not getting anywhere with them. What we need to be doing is creating you know, processes and systems and support networks in community so that people don't get to that really hard, desperate place that often leads them into incarceration. No more prisons indeed. Narita, thank you so much. I mean, really, people need to be on country, you know, not not in prisons. They need to be with their families. That's where they heal. Um, And that's why you see um, where those pockets of investment are in those place-based responses, fantastic outcomes. Because when people are connected to culture, kidding culture, kin and family, you know that that's where their strength lies and that's what's going to make them heal and create a better future for themselves and for generations to come. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming onto the program, Narita. Not a problem, Marissa. You have a lovely afternoon. You too. Take care. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Wally, Wally, I'm 
And that was Shelley Morris with Saltwater People, a beautiful piece sung in language. Um, and uh, we'll put the full, uh, the full song in our today's rundown. You're listening to 3CR 855 on the radio. We've just heard from the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita Waite, talking about some of the key justice reform issues of First Nation communities in Victoria. Um, yeah, it's called VELS, and as we mentioned earlier, VELS has made um, two submissions to the Uruk Justice Commission, one on the criminal justice, uh, one on criminal justice, and one on child protection. You can listen live to the Uruk Justice Commission public hearings via their website, or read the submissions and other submissions made to the commission in this current phase of truth telling. You can head to Uruk Justice Commission dot org dot au slash submissions um, submissions library, and just a note that Uruk has two R's. And you can also visit the VALS website at vals.org.au. And a big thanks to Marissa from Doing Time Program for sharing the conversation with us. You can catch Doing Time every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. on 3CR. Now, just as a quick rundown of today's shows and our programming, at the top of the show we had Scott Jordan talking about all things environment, followed by Josh Ruse on democracy and misinformation, and Damien Manuel on information and data security. Otherwise, this is the last live show for Wednesday Breakfast for this year. Mm -hmm. And just a massive thanks from the whole Wednesday Breakfast team for everyone tuning in, uh, giving us your feedback, your thoughts. Um, But, yeah, listening to the content, uh, we have a lot of fun making it and we hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. Definitely. um Hoped, uh, well, I'll be joining in a lot more next year. Um, Grace and Claudia will also definitely be back. And thank you so much, Idwen, for um, hosting for these couple of weeks um, when everyone's kind of been on break. Um, It's been a lot of fun working with you. (laughs) Pleasure. And as we said, um, Claudia will be bringing some great summer listening over the next week with special programs on books that we've loved in 2022. So, a great one for, yeah, this little holiday break. Hope you have a great time however you spend the next um, bit to the New Year's and we'll talk to you guys all in January. But thanks and stay safe until then. Coming up next, here's the song I Want an Alien for Christmas by Fountains of Wayne.
3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.